Um, one of the most important moments in my spiritual life and my faith life when I was younger was the first time I tried deep fried ice cream. Now stay with me, stay with me. I mean, if you know, you know, like the outside is that like salty, crunchy layer, usually with cinnamon toast crunch. And then the inside is like the sweet vanilla ice cream. And then it combines two of my favorite things in the world, ice cream and a deep fryer. So, uh, now, if you've ever been in residence or you've lived in dorms on campus at a college or university, you know that at a certain point in your first year, you've just exhausted your resources. Like you typically don't, at least I didn't have any money. I was on a limited meal plan, just trying to pay for university on my own. And you get to that certain point where you're like alone in your dorm room and you've exhausted or grown really sick of your stash of like mac and cheese or microwave popcorn. I see some heads nodding along. And so for me to be invited to somebody's house who was a Jesus follower, for tacos and deep fried ice cream, which I'd never had before. I mean, <laughs> he is risen indeed. My friend. Like, I, <laughs> it was awesome. But this is what it's all about. It really is. All kidding aside, this is what it's all about. For thousands of years, we as the collected body of Christ, the first disciples who would later be called apostles, were known for how they gathered around the table. They were not known for their religious coercion. They were not known as being like special, like speakers or teaching pastors or anything like that. They helped where they were. Jesus commanded them to do what? To go out into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to make a disciple? It means to lay down our lives for the sake of another, to be willing to engage in this new life, this new kingdom, this new exodus that is all about self-sacrifice of compassion and not coercion. That in Jesus, we see self-sacrifice made perfect, the perfect view for us, that the Son of Man came to what? Serve and not be served. And so gathering around the table, inviting people into our homes, having discussions about faith, conversations about Jesus around tacos and deep fried ice cream and French fries and coffee and beer and wine and the bread and the cup and fish and loaves has always been what we're meant to be about. Brothers and sisters at the Meeting House, if we are gonna make it as a church, if we are going to make it as a church, if we're gonna make it as those who call themselves disciples of Christ, this has to be a core part of who we are and how we are, that we are inviters, inviters into each other's home, not just to face forward at church on a Sunday. The world has little appetite for that, but the world is spiritually hungry for people who live out an authentic version of a Jesus ethic, of following Jesus in their everyday lives. This is who we are meant to be. And if that won't get an amen, I don't know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So what did the earliest followers do? 
You remember for our Easter sermon, we talked about like when they realized the, the resurrected hope of the Christ, of the Messiah, of, of this deity, this God man, the hope of the res- resurrection, they went and they're like, we have to tell everybody. But if you back up a few steps, Jesus gave them their marching orders of what to do here and now. Tell people, help people, serve people. If you forget everything else in this sermon, in this 20 minutes or so, if you forget everything else, know that that's what we are called to do. Tell people, help people, serve people. Tell people, help people, serve people. Turn to your neighbor and say, tell people, help people, and serve people. Go ahead. Tell people, help people, and serve people. So Jesus, may we respond. May we receive what you have for us today in this written text, the story of how you taught your disciples, how you lived this out, and how they responded. May we receive what it is that you have for us in this text. May you illumine our hearts and minds by your spirit. And may we respond with what it is we are meant to do today, this week, with what you've taught us. In Jesus' name, together we all said, amen, amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Mark, which is going to be our central text for today. If you have your Bibles with you, go to um, the book of Mark, chapter 6. We're starting in verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, I think there's some at the back where you can take out your phone. If you are new to faith, whether here, um, gathered here in Oakville, or across all of our sites, and you're like, I have never handled a Bible before. Where is this section? Is it in the back near the maps? If you just go to the middle of the Bible, turn right, book of Mark, Matthew, Mark, second book, and go to the number 6, and we're going to be reading through. Um, then fast forward to uh, verse 30. We'll start in verse 30, and we're going to go all the way to verse 44. Now, this will be a really familiar passage, not just to us who call themselves the church and Christ followers, but like it has made its way into common everyday culture. We're reading the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, you ready? Okay. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all that they had done and taught. And then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. And he said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't have any time to eat. So they left by boat to a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving and people from many towns ran ahead of them along the shore and got there ahead of Jesus and his followers. And Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And you remember, uh, if you've been at the meeting house for any uh, number of days, weeks, or months, or years, this rabbinic tradition wasn't just like teaching one monologue for it, it was interaction with the crowd. So Jesus is taking time to ask questions, to answer, and to teach, to teach them what this kingdom of God looks like. So he began teaching them many things. And then late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desert place. This is a remote place, and it is already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the nearby by farms and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus said, no, you feed them. With what? They asked. We'd have to work for like months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. We can't do it. How much bread do you have? Jesus asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. These will be available after. (laughs) 
five loaves of bread and two fish. And then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. And then Jesus took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so that they could distribute it to the people. And he also divided the fish for everyone to share. Gross. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples collected 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish and a total of 5,000 men and their families were filled, were fed well. Hmm. So a little bit of context here. Jesus, um, early on in the passage, he's actually started out his um, ministry tour, which is what he's sending his disciples out to go and do. He started out his ministry tour uh, in his hometown. So he's in Nazareth, in Galilee, and he's teaching the people that he would have grown up with. And uh, Mark's gospel says that he records a couple miracles there, but not many, not many. He records a couple miracles of healing people who are sick, which um, religious leaders never did. Like you asked for God for that provision, not for a rabbi to come and touch and heal you because that would make you, like we learned in Leviticus, ceremonially, ceremonially uh, uh, unclean. So you had to keep your religious purity laws and Jesus just like steps right by them and goes to the poorest of the poor, the people who are sick and hurting and suffering and says, I see you, I love you, you are healed. But the people in his own town start to scoff at him. Early in the chapter, they say like, who is this dude? Is this like Yeshua, the, like the, the son of Mary and Joseph, the carpenter? Like where did he get all this wisdom? And they reject him. So from his own town, he is rejected and sent out. And Jesus is not dismayed. He's baffled by their lack of faith, but then he doesn't go, okay, well, let's shut them all down. Let's rain fire from heaven. The whole thing is over. Instead, he gathers the 12. He gathers his um, first disciples and he'll later call them apostles, witnesses, witnesses to the Christ and builders of the church. He gathers his disciples and he sends them out two by two. Okay, so Mark is doing something here. He's helping us to pay attention. First of all, Jesus has gone back to his hometown as this redeemer, the renewer of all things. Mark is meant to is meaning to tell us like this is the new exodus right in your gathering the new exodus Jesus is rejected uh, by Nazareth just like Moses was rejected by Egypt he goes out into a remote place he starts to um, teach and heal and then even going back further in the Old Testament story the disciples are sent out with promise two by two where have we heard this before where have we heard this before the Noah covenant, right? So Mark is doing something here and God is at work through this movement, this flow through the text. Now we get to this section of scripture where Jesus is sent his disciples out and it's fascinating if you've read it. Do you know what he tells them to do? Take nothing with you. Not a bag, you can take a stick. That's it. One stick, that's it. You can wear sandals, uh, no Jordans, no Nikes, nothing. Just sandals and you can take a stick. Don't even take like an inner tunic and stay with the people there. Count on their hospitality because you're modeling what it looks like to follow Jesus, to follow me in this new kingdom concept, in this new context that the religious folks, the ones who follow God the closest are closest to the people as well. That people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
So the disciples are staying with people and ta-da, they come back and they report to Jesus all of the things that they have experienced. And what are the things that they have experienced? They are also able to, they they anoint people with oil, which is a symbol of God's blessing, the Holy Spirit that will come um, on the people uh, in a short period of time. But for now, it's a special anointing in this messianic age that God is here in the flesh and that God's work is being done through his people. They heal people, they anoint them with oil, they they cast out demons and evil spirits, they heal people holistically emotionally, mentally, physically, and then they report back to Jesus all that they have done. They are flabbergasted. They're like, it works. It works. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's amazing, right? All right, let's go rest. He takes them off into a remote place. And by this time, people are paying attention. I mean, who wouldn't? This new message of God is one of love and healing and grace that everybody is in, that religion is starting to die and new life in this kingdom through this Messiah, this Christ called Jesus is starting to, to breed resurrection life. Well, I wanna be a part of that. And so we read that in Mark's movement and in every other gospel that there are crowds of people, unnamed, unnamed people, likely very, very poor because they're unnamed, who are following Jesus to where he is going because they want to be healed They want to be healed and they want to connect with the living God who is here, not the dead God of religion who has just made more and more rules, which was never the heart of God in the first place. So he takes the disciples out to a remote place where they're supposed to rest, but people have started to gather. They follow them. They actually run ahead of them. So pretty fast uh, ahead of him in the boat and they gather and Jesus sets up on a hillside where we heard this before. He sets up on a mountainside to give a new way of being to provide for them. Again, Mark is saying, pay attention. This is the new Moses. This is the new Moses. This is the person that we have been waiting for. Now, also fascinating, and I'll go by this really, really quick. Mark um, does a little bit of like a story sandwich in here. Um, so he also refers back to like, everybody is getting excited about Jesus, but there are a few that very much are not. One of them is Herod the king. And he references that Herod the king, he gives the story of like two meals that have happened. First is Herod the king's meal, the banquet that he holds for himself for his birthday. And he invites all sorts of nobility, religious rulers and people who are um, fighting in the military. He invites them all together and they have this banquet. And if you know what happens here, he's heard about Jesus, he's stressed out and he thinks that Jesus might be John the Baptist reincarnated or resurrected. And he's like, oh my goodness, I kind of remember what I did to John the Baptist, may or may not have chopped his head off. I'm terrified. And he gives this brutal example, Mark records the brutal example, a really fast flyby of the danger of when people in power get together to celebrate themselves. The first meal is, uh, is bent with religion and prosperity and it ends in death. And the second meal is far away from the religious establishment, the people of power, and it ends in hope and abundant overflow. Two meals, one starts and ends in death, and the second meal, though it seems like everything would be lost, ends in abundant overflow and hope. The second feast is put on by King Jesus, and it's for the poor, where Jesus is the bread of life. He provides for both the body and the soul, and it ends with hope. Are you getting this? You see, where, you see where Mark is trying to take us here. Now, some things to note. There are two miracles that occur in every single gospel account. Number one is the resurrection. Number two is this, this overfeed, the feeding of the 5,000. Every single gospel account features this miracle. It's almost like they wanted to make this an example. 
It's almost like there's something miraculous happening here. It occurs in every single one of the gospels. It always involves people being gathered and served whether they are holistically hungry, body and spirit. It always involves them being outside of the temple, outside of the city of God, out in the country. It occurs after a day of teaching and questioning and relationship. It occurs because of compassion and not coercion. And it's both a physical and relational miracle that Jesus manifests to show what's really important and what the sacrificial life looks like. And what does it look like? Caring and serving. And what are the results? Some people get food. Some people get to hang out with each other. Some people get to hang out with a living God, and the religious people are absolutely furious about it. The religious among them are absolutely furious. So then, why the food? What to make of these things here? Well, when you look at this, um, like, anybody want to come over for lunch? Probably not. So what we're, what we're seeing right here is like, it's like a Happy Meal. It's like a McDonald's value meal. These are uh, the normal meals of the poor. So if you notice, when they are gathered together, and it actually happens in John's gospel as well, um, who is the first person in John's gospel that we read that comes forward with what he has to offer? A little boy, a little boy. Now again, in the economy of the time, if you were a child or a woman, you were the lowest of the low. So the fact that like, again, the gospels are making a point of something here, that even from the lowest of the low, the lowest socioeconomic class, women and children, God can make whole what seems broken. God will elevate the lowest of the low to a place of power in order to serve. And so what once was like nothing, I mean, how is this gonna feed uh, 5,000 or 20,000 people? Because in that economy, again, it would only be like men that were counted. So it's 5,000 plus women and children to eat this. To eat this. This is a poor person's lunch. And it doesn't dissuade Jesus at all. Now, it's fascinating. Is this distracting for me to keep holding the fish? A little bit. Yeah. I'll put it down. It's fascinating what Jesus does first. So first of all, we're seeing like a poor person's lunch. It's a little boy who comes and offers this thing to eat. Um, it's a poor, poor person's lunch. And it, it's fast, like this is an aside. This is free. You don't have to pay for this. The fish becomes a, a, a consistent icon of the Christian church. Isn't that amazing? It's like, yeah, we love the poor. We serve the poor. Like this can be like the, the Roman torture device and a fish. Terrible branding and marketing. Awful. And yet this is what Jesus and the Christian church choose as like, you want to see what the kingdom life is like? This is what it's like. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So this would also be a signal of the Exodus. Remember what I told you like Mark was doing? So where are these people gathered? They're out in, uh, the disciples say, we are out in a desert in a remote place. And Mark records that they have a similar voice and response, the disciples in particular, to um, the, the, the Israelites wandering, wandering the desert. The disciples come to Jesus and say, dude, okay, you've been talking for a long time, enough. The people, it's getting late in the day. We're out in a remote place in the desert. Send these people where? Back to the city, to the villages, back to their homes to get themselves something to eat. And Jesus is like, nope, you feed them. 
Do you trust me enough to provide for your physical needs and watch what I do with their relational needs? So the food, that's what's up. It's a poor person's lunch. It's a poor person's meal that Jesus will overcome and infuse brand new meaning into. And then the second I would suggest is even more important. It's like there's two miracles that happen here. Have you noticed? So the first thing, like what's the first miracle? Um, Jesus uh, makes uh, tons of fish and loaves, like manifests uh, uh, an, an abundance of food, right? And then, but did you catch what he asked them to do first? So, so he serves the food, he sees what they have, and then he asks the people, he asks the disciples to get the people to sit in groups. Have you noticed that before? He asks the people to sit in groups. Why is this? Is this just like a helpful organizational strategy to get as much food uh, as possible? Jesus has people sit in groups. Now, again, this is like um, an affront to the purity laws of religion at the time. So the meal sharing process was uh, your religious mind as a Jew would kick right into action. First of all, you would say, okay, it's meal time. Am I clean? Am I ceremonially uh, clean? Do I have the right food, the right people around my table? Have I cleansed myself properly? Have I followed the religious order that make this meal possible? And am, am I making sure that there's no Gentiles or poor people who also might be contaminated that would screw the whole thing up? So sitting together for a meal was a religious activity. It reminded you of the organization of religion and also the steps of what it meant to be a religious person. And Jesus has nothing to do with it. He asks the people to sit in groups together. You have to face each other. I read one scholar this last week that said, the miracle of the fish and loaves is a fascinating one. But the miracle of relationship of getting the most religious people and the poor to sit together to share their food is the greater miracle indeed. Is the greater miracle. Now, if you're a poor person and you're out in a remote place, um, you likely wouldn't have anything to bring with you. Now, stay with me for this mental exercise. If you're a rich person and you're out for a journey for the day, what would be something you would probably pack? Snacks. So Mark is pointing at something here. Yes, Jesus manifests the abundance of food, of bread and of fish, but he's also probably getting people to share. That there are people there that are like taking a piece of the Doritos out of their jacket, putting it in their mouth, being, I didn't bring anything. Really? What do you have right there? It's not about the crowd. It's about the community of relationship that says, this is the kingdom life. You must share. You must Care. This is the miracle of God that's happening in the flesh and the physical right here, but it's the miracle of God that will be persistently manifesting in your heart. You have to look at each other. You have to care about each other. It's not just sitting in a crowd, eyes forward. Jesus has them sit together in a desert as a family, a second miracle and a key signal, signal of the kingdom that is here and that is to come. Jesus provides the bread of life, which he calls himself. I am the bread of life. Everything that these people need and everything that we need. And he pushes them and he pushes us to do the same. Jesus takes the scarcity model, a small collection of food with a large gathering of people who are absolutely suffering. And Jesus says, I will provide for your physical need 
and your communal needs. If you want to know what it looks like to follow me, it is a life of self-sacrifice, of self-emptying, of, being, of paying attention to the other, to the people who need it most, of not just having a hoarding mentality that my life is just about gathering as much stuff, as many cars, as big a house as I can, as many zeros in my bank account, but actually looking around and seeing people who have less and bringing them up to an equitable level, to loving them while providing for their need. Do you remember how we started this? The, the, what the earliest disciples were known for is telling, helping, and serving. Telling, helping, and serving. So what are you doing? What am I doing with our dinner tables? I've been so convicted about this over the last number of months. I'm a pretty driven person, and um, we got to a point in our family life where, like, my uh, Heidi and I have two daughters, and Ella, in particular, would be like, can you just, why is your phone at the table? And I'd be like, because I'm very important, and what if Jesus calls, or whatever, you know, i got to take this. I'm just like, the meal was just to alleviate my physical hunger, that I was missing the family that is around me. Supper is not just about food. This is the hallmark of our Christian tradition. It's about being reminded of the supplication of God for the physical, but also the relational community of God that is your own family, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your wife, your church, your home church, your small group, your ladies group, your men's group, your pets group, whatever it is. These are signals of the divine that is manifest in your being, and we we have to pay attention to it. We have to pay attention to it. It's why at the Meeting House we have home churches because we believe that like community happens best when it's not just in blue lit seats or wherever you're watching online, but actually gathered around together, having conversation together and sharing food. So if we call ourselves Jesus followers, if we are going to make it as a church called the Meeting House, we have to ask ourselves, number one, what is an area of need? Number two, how can we help? And number three, where is Jesus calling us to be an unstoppable force of good in the world? Let me repeat that. Number one, we must ask ourselves, what is an area of need that we see and have experienced? How can we help? And then where is Jesus calling us to be an unstoppable force of good in the world? In our family lives, attentiveness at the table, just being fully present with the people that God has gifted you to love and serve called your family. In your social life, including those on the margin. Is your social life um, bent towards including others and not excluding? Your neighborhood life, do you know your neighbors? Do you know the people across your street? Have you ever had like a neighborhood barbecue? Do people know that there is a beacon of hope that lives on your street and it's you? that reflects Jesus to everybody that lives around you. So the first time I cut into that deep fried ice cream was amazing. The crunchiness, the sweetness, combining my two favorite things, vanilla ice cream and a deep fryer. But it actually was the context that was the most meaningful, obviously. We hadn't been invited, about six of us, a group of friends that I went to school with, um, had been invited by this spiritual leader, this church leader who's really well known in the city, by the way, that I was a part of. Uh, and I always had like in those days where I was just like racked with doubt and super suspicious of anybody religious. I was like, oh man, he's, he's inviting us to his house for dinner. It's like Hansel and Gretel, which is going to try and eat us. Um, so we sat there for the first meal and I was like, I'm not going to say anything. 
I'm not gonna say anything. I'm just gonna enjoy this food, make sure it's not poisoned, get out of here as fast as possible. And at the end of the meal, like there was no awkward conversation. It was just kind of quiet and comfortable. And he was like, okay, I'll see you next week. I'm like, what's next week? Well, we're gonna do it every week if you want. Like we'll do Mexican food, yes please, and deep fried ice cream, and I'm in. I don't care what kind of cult this is. <laughs> every single week. And then finally I got up the courage to ask him, his name is Wally. Um, like, why do you do this? And his answer wasn't like theologically astute or amazing. He just said, because I, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be alone, depressed in your dorm room, not having a relational community. I'm just not okay with that. So if you're part of our church, part of this movement, we're going to eat together. I'm like, man, like, where have you been all my life? This is the voice of God through my brother Wally that I, I know what it's like and I'm not okay with it just continuing this way. So whether it's deep fried ice cream, whether it's a coffee or a beer or a wine or a meal or whatever after this gathering, wherever you find yourselves watching, wherever you're listening here, the hallmark of our Christian tradition is to tell, help, and serve, to gather around the table knowing that God provides everything that we need and that ours is a relational community that moves out into the world as an unstoppable force of good through compassion and not coercion. So brothers and sisters, may we be a church that listens, that sees, that helps, and that serves and if we're going to make it as a church, may we be a gathered body who continues to pay attention to where Jesus is inviting us to be an unstoppable force of good in the world that needs it. And together we all said, amen. 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 Jesus, may it be so. May it be so.